0: And I'm Cal Ralstiala. And this is International, International Law, Behind Law Behind the Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hi, this is Cal Ralstiala, and welcome back to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. Uh, we've been on a bit of a hiatus, but uh, I'm very happy to be back, and especially to be back with two really outstanding experts, uh, Ryan Goodman and Tess Bridgman, I think are. Pretty well known to probably most listeners of this podcast uh, as the uh, executive editors of Just Security. They're also both prolific authors uh, with extensive government experience between them, the White House, the State Department, DOD uh, and elsewhere. And so they're really uh, very well placed to talk about what is the most sort of significant uh, international law topic, I think, of the day which is the ongoing conflict uh, in Israel and Gaza, and specifically the law of war dimensions, so the use and bellow dimensions of that conflict. In Just Security earlier this year, they jointly published uh, a really terrific piece that I recommend to all listeners, uh, kind of going through various aspects of of the laws of war and how uh, IHL, international humanitarian law, applies uh, to aspects of this conflict. And so we're gonna kind of dive into that topic or set of topics today uh, a little bit deeper. And um, Tess and Ryan, uh, I'm really uh, happy that you agreed to come on the podcast to do this. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having us. Uh,
0: So maybe we could start with a really basic issue that obviously arises in many conflicts, but seems particularly fraught uh, in this conflict. Um, which you know lends itself, of course, to you know to many debates. Um, which is the distinction between a combatant and a civilian, and how to think about that in a context uh, like Gaza, or maybe with regard to uh, uh, an adversary like Hamas. Um, I know this is something that the uh, ICRC has talked about at length. It's it transcends this particular conflict but this conflict has really brought it into stark relief. So could we start there and maybe just elaborate a bit on how we understand that when we have a kind of unconventional fighting force?
1: Sure, Um, it's a, yeah, it's a fundamental question that many of the other questions I imagine we'll discuss will be predicated on this distinction. So the idea is um, that the quote-unquote basic rule of international humanitarian law is that no lethal force should be directed at civilians to try to kill civilians, uh, but instead has to be directed at um, combatants or military objects. So the question becomes who's a combatant and who's a civilian. And there are differences of opinion to some degree, but in many respects, I think there's overlapping consensus uh, view on some aspects of this. So the category first is the combatants. So that would be members of an armed group. And then it would have to be something of an organized armed group. Maybe that has a hierarchical structure. And members of the armed group, uh, the difference of viewpoints in that respect is that the ICRC view is that you can define the membership in the armed group based on whether or not the individual um, has a continuing combat function. So it's actually even referred to as the CCF test. And the United States government's view, for example, would be different. It would say, no, it's actually broader than that. It's more contextual. And it's if the same individual would be considered to be a member of the armed forces in um, a regular armed force of a state And then are they analogous in the armed group? So here uh, for Hamas, it might very well raise one kind of difficult question, which is when we talk about targeting of Hamas, well, if that's targeting the military members, then it doesn't matter whose viewpoint you take on the definition, it's going to register as a legitimate target. But, A second order question would be, well, are there members of Hamas that are not part of the military wing? What about uh, the fact that Hamas apparently obviously runs uh, administration within Gaza and uh, maybe running schools and things like that? Those individuals performing those functions surely don't count um, as part of the military wing. So that's where it might raise the question. And then the only other item that we could maybe flag... Or even early in the discussion, is, well, what about civilians who are used as human shields? And I'll just try to very succinctly state <laughs> that if we're talking about involuntary human shields who are therefore being used by Hamas, uh, use of human shields in that way is illegal and uh, potentially a war crime if we're in an international conflict, but they are still civilians. Uh, so that they must still be treated as civilians according to the basic rule. And then some of the other rules that we must, that we'll probably discuss like proportionality and minimization of harm. Mm-hmm. to civilians.
2: And as usual, Ryan has covered the waterfront um, very thoroughly, but I would just add uh, one more thing, which is uh, this question has been raised. Um, you know, what about folks who support Hamas? And I think just to clarify that, there is no view of the law that says political support of an organized armed group is sufficient for a civilian to lose their status as such. So it just simply, mm-hmm. there's there's no room to argue that direct participation in hostilities includes things like political support. Um, and that's important as well, because we've heard um, some pretty alarming loose rhetoric referring to the population of Gaza as you know, an enemy or an adversary in a a military sense. Um, And it's it's, it's imperative to kind of have as a starting point that the population of Gaza as a whole is a civilian population. So any operation that's targeted at Gaza as a whole would be an operation that's targeted at civilians as such regardless of whether they're warned that the operation is occurring, et cetera, you know, being warned that an operation is occurring and not moving doesn't mean someone's directly participating in hostilities. So it's, it's just important to set that as our baseline um, in terms of that, the civilian character of the population of Gaza as a whole.
0: Great. Great. So it sounds like you don't have to respond to this, but it it sounds like um, in a sense, in a traditional army, meaning a kind of normal uh, army, like maybe the U.S. Army, That would have someone whose job is to cook, um, but they are in fact a soldier in a chain of command, trained and so forth, but they're not at the moment engaged in something we traditionally consider war fighting. They're still targetable simply because of their status, um, even if they're doing something like cooking, but if instead you have an unconventional army or fighting force and there's someone who's supplying food and just happens to be handing them food, that's different. And so, in some ways, the structure of your military might determine some of these distinctions. Am I am I off base with that?
1: No, yeah, that's right. And I would actually, you're actually hitting on something. Just generate gener, generically or generally is uh, thought about in uh, the law of armed conflict, not necessarily specific to this conflict that might be applicable. Which is, does that create an asymmetry? Mm-hmm. Right. So, if it's a state versus a non-state actor, is the exactly. code on the state side? And part of the answer is, as you describe it, well, it depends upon how the two sides organize their military, because you could answer that asymmetrical concern by saying, well, it's not necessary to make the cook a part of the the armed forces. They could also get an independent contractor to do the cooking, just as we do private contractors do a lot of things for militaries. So it's the choice to have uh, brought them out of being a member of the armed forces, and so that if that cook were otherwise just accompanying the armed forces as a private military contractor providing food, they would not be targetable. Uh, so that that's one way of trying to understand that it's not necessarily asymmetrical, um, yes. but that's one way of thinking through it, Yeah.
0: No, that's really helpful because that is obviously something that arises a lot in this particular conflict. And, and of course, in this conversation, we're, we're, we're going to toggle between more abstract kind of issues and how they directly apply here. But that asymmetry is something that I've certainly seen people comment on, uh, sometimes feel that there's an unfairness or something about the fact that, you know, the Israeli military is more conventionally set up and Hamas, it's kind of very amorphous. And so there's the ability to kind of slide in and out of statuses. Uh, in a way that isn't always possible on the other side.
2: Um, one other small point, uh, but important one that we should flag, is the presumption of, a, of civilian status Cal, which Ryan has written about at length. But uh, just to basically say it quickly, that there is a, a presumption when in doubt as to whether a person is a civilian or a combatant, mm-hmm. the person right. is considered a civilian.
0: Right, right. Great. So I want to get back to Ryan briefly mentioned human shields. Of course, this issue arises uh so frequently uh in in contemporary warfare generally, but especially in this conflict. Um and I would maybe extend uh the conversation to also hospitals or other facilities. Um, you know, there was with the, I think it's the Al-Shifa hospital, you know, a lot of attention to whether uh, you know, was it in fact some kind of uh, you know, uh Hamas uh uh facility underneath or something like that? What difference does that make? So um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about how to think about the targeting, uh, what is permissible or what is not permissible in the targeting of a facility like a hospital where um it seems to it may seem to appear to be one thing, but maybe it's really the other and we don't really know. And so just walk us through the right way to think about that problem.
1: Sure. So I think I'd just start by saying the basic way of thinking about it and then adding a couple layers of complication. So the basic way is that buildings, um, infrastructure are also going to be either military or civilian. Um, Something like a hospital is obviously civilian. Um, And that said, so it should never be targeted as long as it is a civilian object. Um, But uh, what if the enemy armed forces convert it and start using it structurally as um, for military purposes. Uh, So maybe they start housing arms, there, soldiers there, or beneath the infrastructure tunnels and rooms in which they um, have nodes within their military network buried beneath the civilian infrastructure and let's say a hospital. Well, then it has actually converted it in a certain sense. And the reason I say a certain sense is because they're now a part of that civilian infrastructure that is being used militarily, but what would still need to be applied is proportionality analysis. If we're talking about hospitals, there's additional protections uh, for hospitals in terms of warnings that have to be given, etc. but a hospital could be subject to a military attack, but it would have to be an attack that takes into account very seriously whether or not the devastating impact on civilians is excessive in relationship to the military benefit. Um, So that's the, in some ways, that's actually the straightforward (laughs) analysis. Um, One piece that does get a little complicated here is there's a prevailing standard view by the that's shared by the ICRC, the United States, and as far as I know, overwhelming majority of other states, that these objects, the way I just described them is the proper way to describe them, that part of the object becomes uh, a military target because it's being used for military purposes. In other words, it's like dual use. It's still being used at a hospital, but it also has this other purpose that's being used by the enemy armed forces. The Israeli um, position, as a matter of their formal position on the law appears to be that no, once a civilian object has been converted to military use, if there is no other way to eliminate the military use, but to take down the whole object, then the whole object gets taken down and it does not fit into the proportionality analysis. Now they would still say any human being who's a civilian that would be killed in that kind of attack is still part of the proportionality analysis, but in terms of civilian infrastructure, um, it actually disappears from the equation. And so that's obviously, a, at a minimum, let's put it this way, a very controversial view. I, I don't think it's well-supported um, either in the body of international humanitarian law, but it's their view over a long period of time.
0: Okay, so it's pre-existing, this this conflict. That's something that the Israelis have, have articulated before.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: Okay, uh, that's really helpful. And so... Um, you mentioned special rules or warnings for hospitals. Where do those rules come from? Like what's the source of those rules?
2: Uh, Just suppose- yeah, go ahead. John. Oh, go ahead, Ryan. You go first.
1: It's pretty sure. straightforward. The Geneva Conventions themselves, uh, then an understanding of uh, in which every state of the world has ratified the Geneva Conventions. Mm-hmm. Then you have the additional protocols on the 1970s and um Israel has not ratified the key additional protocol, Protocol One, nor has the United States um, and a few other states. Um, and so then the question becomes: is this part of the body of customary international law? And I'm uh, unaware of Israel or any other state really contesting the body of rules that we're describing as applying to medical facilities as customary international law that would be binding in this situation. And in some way, I should also just flag that we haven't yet discussed that some of international humanitarian law is going to be um, stricter and a greater um, set of rules if we're in an international armed conflict versus a non-international armed conflict. But up until this point in our discussion, everything is actually the same. It's almost, it's not almost, it is irrelevant uh, whether or not it would be an international or non-international armed conflict.
0: Great. Can you briefly explain that distinction and and sort of what turns on it?
2: Yeah, sure. I can jump in here and and Ryan, feel free to jump in as well. Uh, So there are uh, generally speaking two different types of armed conflicts, international armed conflicts that apply, that that occur among states uh, and non-international armed conflicts where one or more parties is a non-state actor, organized armed group uh, such as Hamas. Um, such as Al-Qaeda or ISIS in many of the wars the U.S. has been fighting since 9-11. So the kind of full set of the four Geneva Conventions, uh, additional protocol one to those conventions um, applies to international armed conflicts. And <laughs> it's a very fleshed out body of law with a great deal of detail um, and state practice um, that, you know, it's it's fairly easy to Look, look to a a page in the Geneva Conventions or additional protocol one and find a rule. Non-international armed conflict that is uh, conflicts that involve at least one non-state actor are um, uh, kind of uh, more difficult in the sense that there's a, a smaller body of black letter law that applies uh, so you're looking at Common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions, Additional Protocol 2, um, to the extent um, it, it applies in the territory at issue, and customary international law that's applicable in non-international armed conflict. So in a sense, uh, kind of m- many of the most important rules, and certainly most of the ones we've been talking about thus far with UCAL, are, are rules that apply whether the conflict is international or non-international. Um, you know, Targeting of civilians is a war crime uh targeting of civilian objects is a war crime attacks have to be proportionate uh per the rule that that um Ryan laid out um etc you know taking hostages is a war crime torture is a, whor- is a war crime using rape as a weapon of war is a war crime so these things are going to be war crimes no matter which um which type of armed conflict you're in. One of the ways in which um, these distinctions can become important is if you're looking at um, some of the the obligations that Israel would have if it's considered an occupying power in Gaza. Um, and the you know the international armed conflict rules that apply with respect to the obligations of an occupying power are much greater uh, than if Israel is not considered to be an occupying power of that territory. Um, some of the uh, crimes that apply in an, in an international armed conflict and the, the grave breaches regime of the Geneva Conventions, is that's another significant distinction. Um, so I'll stop there and see, Cal, if you have other specific things you wanted to follow up on on that, or if, Ryan, you wanted to add to that.
0: That was terrific. Ryan, do you want to um, elaborate on that at all?
1: Sure. Um, I think one of the key questions that might have a a dramatic effect on how one thinks about the current conflict is whether or not this is occupied territory um, in Gaza. Yes. And so when Tess mentioned that, that one would significantly affect the legal analysis. Um, So if indeed uh, Gaza was occupied territory from day one of this conflict or northern Gaza has become occupied territory subsequent due to Um, Israeli military operations there, or does in the future, let's say, uh, then there are lots of affirmative obligations that would apply to Israel as an occupying power. Most relevant uh, to, I think, a lot of people's thinking these days would be uh, humanitarian relief to the civilian population, uh, because at that point, it's no longer any questions about consent by the Israeli government to third party delivery of humanitarian relief or anything like that. In an, occupy, in an occupation setting, they would have an affirmative obligation uh, to provide uh, food and water and the like uh, to the civilian population.
0: Right, right. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was wondering about. And so let's, if it's okay with you, can we talk briefly about, um, I think the, Ryan, you nicely distinguished between was Israel an occupying power prior to the conflict? I know, you know, that's a, that's a contested issue, obviously. Um, but you brought up the issue of, of is it, uh, is it currently one because of the prosecution of this conflict? So in Northern Gaza, where it seems to have a substantial amount of control. So maybe we could just limit ourselves to that for the moment. Um, does it seem like a situation of occupation to you, either of you with regard to some portion of the Gaza Strip at this moment?
1: Uh, the way I think about it is, um, it's getting very close <laughs> and every time I hear about or learn about um, pockets of areas in which Hamas still is operating militarily or able to launch missile strikes into Israel from northern Gaza, then it uh, pulls back from that line uh, because then it sounds like we're still in a situation of uh, highly active hostilities in which Israel does not have effective control of the area but if they did then uh these rules would kick in very much as they would for turkey having effective control in syria let's say
0: yeah so just to clarify the key feature of the law of occupation is this effective control standard which is a kind of factual standard is that correct
1: yes and that just to flag that there is a um live discussion controversy as to whether or not some rules of uh the law of occupation and some of the obligations that apply to an occupying power might be on a kind of a sliding scale so that the as uh, they are gaining more and more effective control and this is super relevant to the international criminal courts prosecution of cases today on russia in georgia and it could easily come up for Russia in Ukraine, and um, it's a controversy because there's a uh, OLC uh, memos that came out of uh, the Bush period uh, soon after 9/11 that cut against <laughs> the idea that those kinds of uh, those kinds of obligations apply in the invasion phase or the sliding scale phase. Uh, so that's just to flag that as a separate issue that's uh, on its own complicated. So it's not so easily um, cut into n- uh, neat pieces here.
0: Thank so you just un- to- un- sorry, Tess, just unpack that a little bit. So OLC being the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, and when you talked about that, Ryan, you were referring to Iraq and the occupation of Iraq.
1: And I think there was also thought about Afghanistan, and it's difficult to know in terms of what all they were thinking about at the time. Um, but these are, uh, I think it's fair to say, very controversial OLC opinions. I can envision a mm-hmm. future in which they are um, rescinded or revised.
0: Okay. Sorry, Tess, go ahead.
2: No, that's a helpful uh, clarification. I just wanted to add that I know, Cal, you're directing us to think about maybe starting now or looking into the future, which I think is helpful. But in this particular context, I think it's important to keep sight of the fact that there had been, you know, in an uncontested way, an occupation of Gaza for quite a long time. And so yes. the question of whether um, you know, the perimeter control that Israel continued to exercise sporadic, but pretty consistent internal uses of force, you know, whether that would be sufficient to initiate uh, an occupation, it's seen as more plausible that they're at least sufficient to maintain a state of occupation, given one had existed for so long prior to, to 2005. Um, so I think it's that just that baseline question of, is a state of occupation being maintained or is, you know, to your question about, you know, the facts being in flux right now, especially in northern Gaza, um, is there enough authority being exercised by Israel in that territory to consider it an occupation? We, we can't divorce it from that context.
0: Interesting. So maybe the fact that prior to the pullout in two thousand and five, there was an uncontested occupation or largely uncontested occupation, that might impact our analysis about whether that uh, that occupation continues or perhaps some aspects of the law of occupation should be read differently in light of that history. Is that is that what you are saying?
2: Yeah, exactly. That there is there is a reasonable view of the law that you know the. the The initiation of a belligerent occupation uh, might be a different threshold than uh, what is required to maintain a legal state of occupation.
0: I see, I see. Okay, really interesting. Well, this is a good segue to maybe our final topic, because we're going to run out of time shortly, um, which is sort of about the flip side of this, I guess, in a conceptual sense, which is siege and the notion that maybe Gaza has been and remains, but certainly prior to the conflict, people argued that it was under some form of siege. Um, And then what are the obligations, whether it is a siege or not, um, just generally, what are the obligations of Israel uh, with regard to things like the water supply or allowing humanitarian assistance? And so we just flagged a moment ago that in a situation of occupation, the occupying power has to Uh, you know care for the population it's standing in for the prior sovereign in a sense or the quasi-sovereign in this case Uh, but what sort of duties does Israel have with regard to let's just use water as the kind of stand-in for all of these things that keep human beings alive Uh, what are those duties? So there are a few different ways
1: of looking at this and I think I'll mention one piece that's not really talked about as much, but what I think there are ways of looking at it that are pretty obvious in a certain sense is um, there's no necessary affirmative obligation on the part of Israel to supply um, food and water and the like to a the population. Um, and the key question, if they're not in occupying power, um, the key question is really about denying humanitarian relief from third parties, from humanitarian organizations that are impartial, that would otherwise provide the food and water necessary for the survival of the civilian population. And there, there's a good argument for um, the strict prohibition on the use of starvation or the deployment of starvation in warfare, Tom Dannemau has written a fantastic piece of just security on this. Yes. The National Criminal Court uh, chief prosecutor um, has uh specifically reiterated that the prohibition on starvation can under the specific terms of the Rome statute be triggered by denial of humanitarian relief. Uh so one doesn't even have to think of like, is that a logical um argument It's in the Text of the statute itself. Then, the next step on the analysis is: well, there's an idea that in international humanitarian law and the additional protocols in the ICRC's study in international customary international law, a state must uh, have to consent to. It is dependent upon a state's consent, but then the state's consent cannot be withheld arbitrarily. And what would be arbitrarily withholding that consent if? Is, the, is if the uh, civilian population would be subject to starvation. Um, and especially when we're talking about people in the numbers of hundreds of thousands of millions of uh, civilians. The only um, added point that I would make to that, so everything there, I think, is pretty standard. And if you pick up any commentary, it's going to run the analysis that way and then probably land in the side that says, therefore, denial of humanitarian relief or impartial organizations to the civilian population is uh, strictly prohibited. You can't. They can't deny him under, circums- under these circumstances. I would just add an additional complication of something or additional point. I don't think it's actually complicated. Um, that idea of consent on the part of the state is predicated on the state being a territorial state. And therefore, it would apply, for example, to humanitarian relief that comes over the Israeli-Gaza um, border. But I don't see how that necessarily applies to... The uh, Rafah crossing, which is Egypt's border, and if one even just looks at like the rule in the um, Additional Protocol One, which is also reflected as a matter of customary international law, uh, Rule Fifty Five of the ICRC's body of laws, it refers to the concerned parties, and it says the concerned parties does not include a state if it's not if the relief supply does not run through the territory of that state. So I think that's one added element that if somebody's going to run the analysis, they also have to include uh, that as part of it.
2: Yeah, two two wrinkles I would add to that. Um, and you know, the facts always matter in, in IHL, of course, but the the question of whether Israel um could be allowing this relief to come through its own border, obviously, um, is that you know runs through the more standard analysis that Ryan just laid out. So to the extent it is denying use of the the border crossing available to it between Israel and Gaza to allow relief supplies to flow um that that would run through that standard analysis. And I think the second is um and here uh, I I'm a little fuzzy as to what wh- where the facts would point us but it sure looks like uh, despite the fact that Egypt is, is, of course, in control of its border with Gaza, um, Israel seems to have uh, is certainly have kind of a, a de facto veto and also appears to be threatening the use of force should that veto not be permitted to continue to be exercised. Um, Sorry,
0: veto over Egypt's, uh, over Egypt's opening upon, or closing.
2: Precisely. And Israel has, of course, bombed the Rafa crossing itself, uh, rendering it inoperable for I, I forget how long, but at least a few days uh, at a point earlier in this conflict. So, um, you know, I think those are important fact issues that throw further wrenches into the works of that analysis that Ryan just laid out. Um, but regardless, I think, too, the other thing it's important to emphasize is if, as as in many the the view of many, um, Israel is an occupying power. All of this becomes essentially moot insofar as they are just affirmatively required to allow for, uh, you know, to provide for the sustenance of the civilian population. Um, and that's, um, that, that would, clearly they'd be in in severe breach of that obligation given they announced a siege, um, you know, at the level of the minister of defense saying I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel, everything is closed. So that's uh, an open and shut case um, if they are an occupying power.
0: Right. So an occupying power has to actually not only allow humanitarian assistance in from impartial third parties of some kind but affirmatively has a duty to provide it um, when you step out of that more clear none of this is incredibly clear it's also complex and that's why I'm so glad you're on uh, but if you step out of that relatively clear setting then we're in the situation that you both have just described where um, we're allowing that assistance in or or blocking that assistance is is not allowed. Um, but there isn't an affirmative duty. I just want to clarify that point. So in other words, if we, if we assume away occupation for a second, Israel itself doesn't have to supply food, doesn't have to supply water, um, but it can't stop it from coming in. Is that a, I realize I'm distilling that down very crudely, but is that, is that correct?
2: Yeah, the way we laid it out in, um, in the, the piece that we wrote with Mike Meyer, um, was to essentially point to the denial of consent can't be cons- consent can't be withheld arbitrarily, and there is some some content to that. If you look to the ICRC commentaries to additional protocol two, um, it's essentially um, you know the survival of the population uh, is is uh, if it is threatened, and and a humanitarian organization. Um, fulfilling the conditions of imparti- impartiality and non-discrimination, et cetera, right. is able to remedy that situation. The state cannot deny um, those activities to take place. And it goes so far as to say then as, as a result that such a refusal would be equivalent to a violation of the rule prohibiting the use of starvation as a method of combat um, of, of, of starvation of the civilian population. So um, you know there is debate, I would say, as to exactly where you draw you draw those lines um, in terms of what it means to arbitrarily withhold consent. Um, but certainly, if you have, as you do in the Gaza in the Gaza case, um, impartial organizations um, that are attempting to remedy the situation and consent is denied, you have a problem. You do have the wrinkle Ryan raises, though, about whether Egypt could could simply permit. That assistance to come through sufficient assistance could come through the Rafah crossing, um, and and what to make of the fact that Israel is essentially exercising de facto control, even though it is clearly sovereign Egyptian territory, et cetera.
0: Terrific, terrific. So I know we're out of time. It's just such a good conversation. I just want to ask one tiny additional question that builds off of that point you just made, Tess. Which is, what about the water? What about the other side? Sorry, the ocean, the sea. So there's sort of three ways in. There's through hmm. Israeli territory, there's through Egypt, and then Gaza, of course, has a long coastline. Does that change the analysis in any way?
1: Oh, I can jump in a bit. Um, and I also want to just pivot out to something else as a related point, or kind of a global perspective on our discussion. Um, it could change their perspective with respect to, obviously, if, uh, I would assume that if there are third parties that could deliver supplies directly in which they're therefore once again not crossing um any state's territory then here we go and we're back to the same um kind of equation as with respect to uh rafa and egyptian uh, territory maybe even simplifies the question to a degree the only other piece that i might flag is that maybe um maybe this could change the analysis if we're in a non-international armed conflict and then state consent is a little bit different uh, than the consent of the armed group. Um, But I guess if there's one other thing I'd just love to add to our conversation, I do think that our conversation, just reflecting back on it, what we're dealing with are some difficulties within the law, some gray areas within the law, some factually complicated um, predicates as to whether or not the law would apply one way or another, which is um, all of great importance and that I think what we're it makes for this kind of a conversation of wrapping our hands around it. I I do wanna say though, that at a certain level, there are other aspects of the conflict that are also quite clear. Um, So to me, there's just a part of our conversation, which we focused so much on like evaluating to a significant degree, Israeli actions and whether or not they do or do not cross the line uh, that that are drawn by international humanitarian law. And Tess's earlier comments touched on this as well, but I just wanna make it even more explicit. Let's say the actions of October 7th by Hamas and then continuing by Hamas since then, like the law is clear and the facts are pretty darn clear too, right? So uh, when Tess had mentioned the list of um, conduct that would amount to war crimes, whether we're in an IAC or an IAC, a lot of that's coming out of, you know, October 7th, murder, rape as a weapon, hostage taking, um, and then continuing um, with host- uh, still con- uh Uh, Keeping hostages captive and um, sending rocket missiles that are indiscriminate uh, in the sense that they can't distinguish between Israeli civilian populations and military targets, Uh, but in some ways that doesn't give rise to has media discussion because the law is clear and the facts are so clear along those lines.
0: Great, terrific, really, really helpful, and uh, I really want to thank both of you for coming on. We could obviously continue this, or I I certainly could continue kind of grilling you about these things for. Uh, probably for hours so I hope that perhaps in the future we can have you back Um, and you know we may continue this conversation but really really excellent Uh, and I really want to thank you both for coming on the podcast thank you so much
2: yeah thanks for having us on Cal
0: great take care everyone